The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Okay, welcome. Welcome. My name's Amy Cannon, and I unfortunately have to let you know that John Warner is not here for this session. Um, he was, he's, he's okay. He did spend a little time in the hospital this week, and, um, but he's fine, so he's recovering, and he just couldn't travel, and it, so we, it was really unfortunate timing, but he is fine. So, um, so my colleague, Kate Anderson, is stepping in to, to um, we're gonna have a little tag team partner here to talk to you guys today about green chemistry and biomimicry. So John apologizes that he can't be here. We apologize because he is hugely inspirational. If you did have a chance to, you know, to see him on the main stage last year or some of the years past, he's, he's a wonderful speaker. So hopefully we can do, do some justice here to it. So, um, so again, my name's Amy Cannon and this is Kate Anderson. And um, we are from an organization called Beyond Benign. I co-founded that with John. So John is, is a partner in a, a few ways. We're, we're partners. Um, so we're also husband and wife. So that, you know, we, I usually don't lead with that, but it's a, it's a, it's a reality. That's, that's a, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so I've got a few of his slides in here, too, so I can talk about some of his technology. So, um, so yeah, today we're going to talk to you about green chemistry and biomimicry and sort of the intersection of these two sciences, really, and, and how the value of that together and the power of that together. Um, and then we're going to go into some um, how to apply this in, in education. So um, this is our, our agenda today. We're going to talk a little bit about us. I'm going to do an introduction to biomimicry and green chemistry. I know many of you are probably very familiar, especially with biomimicry and the wonderful, awe-inspiring examples that are out there. So I'm going to touch upon that. And then I'll bridge into green chemistry and how they're related. And then I'm going to hand it over to Kate, who's our director of education at Beyond Benign. And she's going to get into more of the, of the details of some of our resources that, that are out there as well. So our organization was founded in 2007. So we're you know, eight years or so old. And here's our big picture mission and vision. We have no small challenge in front of us to really cha transform the way chemistry is taught and learned. Um, so we see chemistry as really essential in, in solving so many of the sustainability challenges that we have today. So um, this is our, our again, our, our big picture mission and vision. We're fortunate to be co-located. By the way, we're located just north of Boston. And we're co-located with the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry. So when John and I, um, we were both faculty members at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. And when we had an opportunity to leave, we started two organizations. Warner Babcock, who focuses on invention. It's the first research institution of its kind that's solely dedicated to inventing green chemistry alternatives and getting them out there in the market and working with industry. So I'll talk a little bit about some examples coming out of there. And then Beyond Benign. So we focus on all the education work around green chemistry. Because if you think about, um, and I'm going to touch upon this too, 
you know, change has to happen at, in, com in companies and in industry and, and all of that. But education is so an, an essential piece to that change. Because if we're not changing how we educate, we're not going to see much change at all further on down the line. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. So we have a pretty large space. Uh, we have 42,000 square feet of space. If you do come to the Boston area, come on by. Just shoot us an email. We'll, you're, welcome, you're welcome to come visit. We have 42,000 square feet of space. Most of it's research space. Um, this square, this wing of the building, is our, is our space. So we have um, five small offices over here. And then we have a, a classroom where we can actually bring students in. We host field trips. We uh, train teachers in this space. And it's a really great opportunity as well to introduce students to the science of green chemistry and meet some scientists and understand more about what being a scientist actually means. And um, so it's, it's another, it's another um, benefit for us being co-located with Warner Babcock. So um, our organization, on the education side of things, we focus in three main areas. K through 12 education, which we're going to touch mostly upon today. Um, Kate's going to talk a lot more about that. Green chemistry outreach. If you have a chance to visit the family fair site, you'll see some of our outreach in action. So we've got some wonderful student volunteers from UC Berkeley, um, as well as a, a number of other volunteers over there that are helping lead some outreach activities and working with kids um, right over in the family fair there. And um, you know some hands-on green chemistry and biomimicry in action over there. Um, and we also have a higher ed program, because um, again, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but this is really focused on transforming chemistry education at, in colleges and universities. So um, I'm going to take a step back and start with biomimicry. You've probably seen a lot of these images up here. Um, Biomimicry is hugely inspiring, and if you've seen Janine Benyus speak and, and seen some of her, her talks, absolutely amazing and hugely inspiring. And, um, but that's nature, right? Nature, if we you know, take a look and observe all of the amazing things um, that are out there. So, you know, the, the blue morphos butterfly, I think Kate's going to talk about that one in a little bit. We have a lotus leaf, which is inspiring self-cleaning surfaces because of the, the surface structure of, of the lotus leaf. Um, we have our seaweed that's inspired by the Pax fan, which is um, amazingly efficient fan. Um, we have our, our beetle here, which you are or are not going to be talking about. Not. I love this one. It's chemistry. Um, so this, this little guy lives in the desert, and he has these little bumps on his back that are hydrophilic and hydrophobic. So for you chemistry nerds in the room, this is just super, super interesting. And he harvests, you can, if you look at him, you can actually see beads of water dripping off of his back because these hydrophobic and hydrophilic surfaces actually harness the water out of these really arid climates. And um, there's a company that's actually created similar structures to harvest, you know, a liter of water a day in these really dry climates, so freshwater sources. Our medicines um, are, and the way we cure ourselves oftentimes are inspired by indigenous cultures or by animals that look observing them and actually figuring out how they cure themselves. It's very rarely, very rarely is it actually a eureka moment in a lab and, you know, a scientist sort of 
comes up with something out of the blue. Uh, oftentimes, it's just by looking and observing. And so we have this wealth of information out there through biomimicry that is just amazing. And again, you know, Janine Benyus is all her work um, and her, her organization, so, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Um, still an amazing book and an amazing, amazing person. So um, with that, you know, I'm going to give you a few examples of biomimicry in action. Wow, some of my stuff is up here. So there's a smiling beetle up there, which looks a little odd. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what that is. <laughs> He's very happy. Um, so these are some here. I'm just going to, oh, wait, sorry. So here's my beetle. <laughs> so these are some examples that are coming out of the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry. Um, this one is actually a, a collaboration with Paul Hawken, who was on the main stage today. Um, and this is inspired by beetles and the bug sclerotization process. So these beetles, um, if you're familiar with it, you know, they start off nice black and hard, and then they, they sh shed their skin, then they're white and squishy and gooey, and over time, they become hard and black again. I don't know why, I guess he got bigger. He got bigger. He was, he was growing out of his shell. So, yeah. <laughs> he did get bigger, didn't he? Yeah. Um, these are John's slides. So he, he, he sent me a few so that I can make sure I was talking about some of the examples coming out of Warner Babcock. So, John thought about this process in, in close detail, and he realized that he could create a hair dye system out of this. Because it turns out some hair dyes um, that you find in salons are linked to bladder cancer, but also some of the ones that you can find on the shelf um, of still here in the US, which is absolutely amazing. Um, you can see the active ingredient in there is lead acetate. So um, this is Grecian formula for men. And what it does is it gradually restores, it actually gradually deposits lead deposits in your hair. Horrifying, isn't it? Yes, we, can, we cannot um, you know, have it in white paint or put it in our cars anymore, but we can put it on our heads. It's absolutely amazing. But it's banned in Canada and Europe, but here in the US you can still go buy it, go figure. So, um, so this is, uh, uh, so what happened is, is John was thinking about this, this little beaut happy beetle and um, came up with a similar kind of, uh, inspired by the beetle, this Tyrosinase Cascade. He ac actually can do the same sort of thing, but without lead. You know, and this, so this is mimicking a nat natural process. So they've created this process, and what they did was, um, he did this process, he got actually a mixture of hair, he got some hair samples, you can actually purchase hair samples if you're doing this research. Um, <laughs> go figure. We learned a lot about hair you know, in this process. So um, he purchased some hair samples, and he, he did this process that's, again, based on, the, on this beetle. Um, and what happened is they came out, it kind of was, you know, was all different colors. And so he called the vendor, and he said, you know, it's all different colors. What, I, I don't know what, and, and they said, well, actually, what, the, the, what we sold you or what we sell is actually mixtures of people's hairs. So it's not one color. Because usually what um, people who are developing new hair dyes are testing you know, to get one full color and they're actually dyeing the hair. Well, this process is actually restoring your natural color. So what it does is it, it, it restores your natural color back. Um, and so this is, a, this is a patented process. And oh, sorry, he's not only the president, but he's also the client right up here. So there's John. 
Um, if you go on myhairprint.com, there's this great little video where they've got you know these before and after images of him. He ends up being one of the grayest people in the company. So whenever they were testing a new formulation, they would try it out on him. So it was it was really funny. You never knew if he was going to have gray or brown hair when when you saw him next. Right now it's gray. They've they've had the same formulation for a while. Um, so Paul Hawken is now developing, and you can see some of the different ones. It's called Hairprint, and um, they're they're actually. Uh, manufacturing it out here at Sausalito and, and selling it out of here off on myhairprint.com. So it's a wonderful collaboration. Um, so and then another example that, that we've been working on for a long time, this actually goes back to some of my graduate research, um, is ultra-low-cost non-toxic solar. So solar energy devices are wonderful at the sort of end use, um, but they're really expensive to make and they use quite toxic materials in, in the creation of them. These are silicon-based, silicon and silicon, the, that element, you grow these huge wafers, and you can't really get around. You have to melt silico silicon at 1,500 degrees Celsius or above. It's a huge amount of energy in the processing of these panels. Um, and then what do you do with them after the end of their, their lifetime as well? And so it, it also converts into a long energy buyback time for these devices. So we've been working quite a bit on, you know, taking a look and what, you know, let's, let's increase our surface area. Um, let's make these things really low cost, low, um, low toxicity. We can get, um, the efficiency might not be, you know, as much as, as those other panels that I showed you, but look at that surface area. It's beautiful. So, um, you know, how can we create materials like this that mimic more, like, you know, some of these wonderful solar collectors um, that, that we have out there. This is um, titanium dioxide solar cells. These are inspired by, um, I would say inspired by, some of those photosynthetic processes. Um, but part of the trick of these, too, uh, uses titanium dioxide, which is, which is a whitening agent found in tooth, anything from toothpaste to white paint. Um, and what this process for making that semiconductor layer still required about 500 degrees Celsius, so still some energy there. So what we did is um, we took a step back and we said, let's think about how, you know, what else makes a nice film, makes a nice, you know, hard substance that doesn't require that, that energy. And so it turns out that our bones and shells make nice you know, hard films, and we and I didn't have to spend time in a you know 500 degree oven to get my nice bone formation. So, what is that process? Let's take a look and understand that process. So, understanding that calcification process and how proteins chaperone and, and pull the pieces together. By doing that, we actually can now create this semiconductor at room temperature with no essentially no energy. It's actually mechanical grinding that we use to do that. So what is that? I mean, now we're getting towards um, our, our long-off goal for these is, you know, a paint that you can actually have harnessing, you know, energy inside a room or outside. I mean, imagine, you know, what we could do. But now, at least with the drastic, you know, reduction in energy, we're able to, um, you know, look at these, create these things on flexible substrates. We're even looking at, you know, making these on paper. or We were making them on paper at one point. Um, another example, this is from uh, a partnership that we have with Steelcase on the educational side of things. Um, and I think Kate's going to touch upon this a little bit more, so I might not tell you too much about it. Kate's going, don't steal my thunder here. Um, <laughs> 
But um, it's a wonder. It's it's a really interesting way to think about um, you know antibacterial agents. So it kind of flips that on its side and says, as a, as opposed to putting things out into the environment that are going to kill bacteria, let's just figure out how to actually create surfaces that are bacteria static, that bacteria just won't grow on. So it you know it, it's it's a different way of thinking about that. And I'm going to let Kate explain the rest of it. <laughs> So it's all wonderful, hugely expiring, inspiring examples. Um, and you can find so many of them in, in biomimicry. And I'm sure many of you probably have, have come across many wonderful examples as well. But how does biomimicry, biomimicry really relate to green chemistry? And um, this, is how I, this is how I like to think about it. Have you guys seen this picture? No? no? Oh, cool. <laughs> Looks cool. Um, so this guy is hanging from the ceiling um, from this device up here that's actually stuck to the ceiling using this gecko tape. And if you've heard about that, yeah, and it's super cool stuff, right? So it's this, um, you know, the, you, you take a look at this the little gecko feet. There's macro, meso, micro scale. And you get these little structures that actually, you know, increase the surface area and actually adhere really nicely to substrate. So it's this wonderful, wonderful adhesive. There's another picture that, that's also you may have seen, the, the Spider-Man hanging from the ceiling, too. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Those two images are, I've, I've seen quite a bit. Um, wonderful, right? Amazing. Inspired by the gecko. But I ask my question, you know, as a, as a chemist, as a scientist, is that's wonderful that it's inspired by that, but how is it made? What are the materials made of? And that's really where green chemistry comes into play. And that's really what green chemistry is all about, thinking about all of those materials and thinking about that proce the processing. So to think about this a little differently, what I call this my PowerPoint extravaganza slide because it's so exciting. And it took me a while to make this slide, too. So um, <laughs> you know, to explain this a little better, I, you know, I say, well, where do products come from in the first place? And remember, I'm a chemist. I'm a molecular designer. So in, as molecular designers, what we can do as chemists, we take atoms and we arrange them in different geometries. Where's the ooh, ah, see, we need the ooh and ah. Yeah, and oh, wait, that one's a little fuzzy, sorry. Um, <laughs> this is our, a thymine molecule, by the way. Um, but if, if, you know, as a molecular designer, we can make any molecule, any system that we can draw on a, on a whiteboard or, you know, we, that we can draw as long as it doesn't violate some fundamental rules. But do we know how to make it in a benign way, using safe reagents, creating no waste? Um, you know, that's the challenge. That's the challenge for us. But um, we're really good at making molecules, our, our society. We're very good at it. It's just a matter of can we make them safely with reduced hazards and no waste. Um, and we then take molecules and we put, assemble them in different geometries and we put them together and we make all kinds of different materials that have different properties. We take these materials and we put them together and we make different components and devices. So we might have something that when I trigger it, it changes color. I know that was a pretty exciting change there. Or we have something that when we shine light on it, a reaction occurs. That's my photoresist right there for any of you scientists in the audience. Um, or if we have something that when we try to stick to it, it slides right off. That's my non-stick surface. Um, I know, it's it's pretty high-tech slide here. It's, it's just pretty cool. Um, we then put these components, devices together, and we make different products. Anything from 
uh, cosmetics to electronics, and sometimes it's frightening how close similar those two things can be, cosmetics and electronics. But um, you know, and you can imagine how many go into you know something like my iPhone, making something like my iPhone. So. Um, you know, so there's, it's a process for developing our products and materials. And this is, you know, applies to everything in our society. We, we, us chemists, we think of everything as a chemical. And nothing is chemical-free. Whenever we see chemical-free, we sort of go, what is that, a thought? You know, what, like, what, what is it um, if it's not a chemical? So anyway, so this is where um, sort of the process of product development, in a sense, but um, so after, my, my PhD is in green chemistry. Um, I received my PhD from green chemistry, in green chemistry from UMass Boston, um, and I was the first one with that degree, actually. And after that, I went and I did an industrial postdoc. Um, I did it with uh, Roman Haas Electronic Materials, now Dow Chemical, which I know is kind of, might be, you know, questionable for some, some people. but. Um, it's really, it's really interesting to come into you know, an industrial setting with a green chemistry mindset. So what happened is I was um, working in this research group and I was designing um, waveguide materials for photoelectronics. What does that mean? So basically, I was designing um, you know, the polymer, the material that goes on touchscreen computers, so that, that top layer that the touchscreen computers and also the old, the ancient PDA devices. You know, remember those Blackberries with the, those were, you know, the, the, old, the PDA devices, those ones. Not the iPhones, that uses glass on the surface. But, um, so I was designing those, that top layer and um, it's called a waveguide, which is essentially a fiber optic, which is the same thing as our landlines. So we, in our landlines, we communicate with, through photons. So it's, it's actually light that you're communicating information. Whereas in our, our electronics, we're communicating with electrons. So um, the, the, the touchscreen computers, what it is, is it's a grid of light with this material that I was developing grid in one direction and a grid in the other direction. And so when you press your finger on that grid, it sends a signal and it knows where you, you know, it interrupts that grid and then it sends a signal and that's where, where you know, how it knows where you touched on the screen. So in our group meetings, we had um, extensive discussions about this design criteria. So you can imagine this material that we're creating, it has to have a certain performance criteria or design criteria. So uh, it had to have a certain solubility because we were coating it onto a surface. It had to have a certain melting point and glass transition temperature. Because you don't want it, you know, as it gets warm, as it gets hot, you don't want it to warp or, you know, melt or something like that. So it has to have thermal properties. It also had to have mechanical properties. So strength, modulus, because you're touching it day in and day out. So you don't want it to get brittle and break. Um, also had to have a certain refractive index because we're bending light, right? So, so you know, all of these technical design criteria, surface engine, you name it, we went on and on in these group meetings. And what wasn't in this discussion in these group meetings until I came in the room was, what about toxicity and environmental impact? So without these, right, okay, I make a crappy polymer, a crappy product, and, and I, you know, that does uh, warp and, and you know, once, it, once it heats up and it starts warping and bending, I'd say, wow, that's pretty bad. I have to go and redesign it. I have to improve those properties. 
well, can't we think of these two things as a property of the material and really consider that as part of our design criteria so that if it does exhibit toxicity and environmental impact, we'd have to define that a little bit more um, for, for each product. But um, you know, if it does exhibit these things, then we think of it in green chemistry, we think of it a, as a design flaw. And we go in and we re redesign it out. So it's a performance criteria, it's a design criteria, and it needs to sort of be in those research meetings. And um, so what I'm talking about is really at this level. Um, and sorry, this is, I'm jumping to chemistry education. But at that professional level, it's typically not in our language. It's not in those group meetings. It's not in our design criteria. So it's not in our language to be thinking in that way that this is a performance criteria or a design, or a design flaw. So, um, we're, but green chemistry is really the revolution that's trying to bring that into and saying, yes, it is part of our responsibility as designers, as chemists, as engineers, as material scientists to bring that. And it's got to be part of our, our design. Um, so, but if we're trying to change that up here in those group meetings, um, and, we're, and we keep supplying from university students that don't have that training, that don't have that knowledge, and if it's still, and if we don't have change here, then because we see chemistry education really as a continuum, and I probably should say science education more as a whole, science, technology, engineering, and math, um, you know. But we see this continuum all along that that influences they influence each other in both directions. So um, that's really where chemistry edu education comes in, and when we don't, when we're not thinking about it in this way, when we don't have this in our in our language. We come up with all kinds of un unintended consequences of the chemistry that we create and the products that we create. So to think about that a little bit differently, we have all kinds of hazardous things. I do very dangerous things every day, um, as you can imagine. Um, so one of the dangerous things that I do is I try to um, cook, which is very dangerous. And I try to use these knives. Um, You've seen the infomercials, right? The ones where the guy's like cutting through the pipe and then magically cuts through the tomato and it still cuts really nicely. I try to do the same sort of thing. So my, my, my stepdaughter is, is a culinary student and um, no, no, she's no longer a student, sorry. She's now a sous chef. Um, so she's a, a master at all this, right? And she tells me I can't, can't cut everything with a paring knife. And I say, really, I can't? So anyway, um, it's very dangerous behavior. I'm cutting, I'm using a knife, cutting my food. And inevitably, I snip, I slip, and it cuts me. And I, you know, so. But I kind of, I take that risk of, you know, doing that this risky behavior because the function of the knife is to cut the food, and the hazard is, is it can cut me. So it's a very clear relationship with the function to the hazard. I can see it very, very clear um, what the hazard is and 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 the function. Same thing if I try to cook some food, inevitably I'm going to burn the food or burn me, you know, but I accept that risk because it's a very clear relationship from the function to the hazard. And there's all kinds of dangerous things that we do every day where you can clearly, clearly see the hazard, very clear hazards. But in chemistry, things are a little bit different. Do you remember the red dye scare? Um, yeah, so, you know, and red dyes still do have some hazards with it, but, um, so I can make a red dye, right? Again, I told you before, if we can draw the molecule on the board or, or on a piece of paper, we can make it. And I know how to make you know, a red dye. We have to have a certain amount of 
planarity to it. You have to have electron withdrawing group and electron donating group on each side. Anyway, we can make it, right? But if this red dye also happens to cause cancer, that's kind of an oops or an unintended consequence of something that we're making. I was intending to make a red dye. I didn't want one that caused cancer, it just so happened to. So the function to be red is dissociated from the hazard causing cancer. So it's completely dissociated. And there's all kinds of these things in chemistry. So it makes what we do as green chemists really hard. Just because something's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. But um, this is our, our red dye to um, bisphenol A. I mean, it's a wonderful component in this wonderful shatterproof plastic that's now composed in our, our eyeglasses are made of, of polycarbonate plastic. Um, you know, it's this sh shatterproof material that's in, in our um, windshields, in our cars. We also had it in baby bottles. We also had it in lots of other places. But um, it just so happens that when you look at the 3D structure of this, it overlays really nicely with estrogen, and it binds right into the estrogen sites in our bodies. And so that's going to have obvious ne negative implications. Um, to phthalates in our plastics. They're put in there to make nice little squishy plastics, you know, and, and softeners and that sort of thing. Um, that's the function of it, but the hazard completely dissociated to lead. It was a wonderful anti-knocking agent in, in gasoline and a nice stabilizer in white paint. Now we know a lot more about the, the, the unintended consequences of these, but that's how they were really, um, they were developed in these research meetings with that function in mind and um, without having that sort of performance criteria of, yeah, let's make sure it doesn't impact you know, our kids and the environment and that sort of thing. Let's, let's make sure it doesn't do that too. Um, so we have all kinds of dissociated hazards and unintended consequences of the chemistry that we do. And what we typically do when we um, create and, and have and create hazards and use hazardous things, what we've traditionally done is done that worried about it after the fact. So we put on gloves to protect our hands, we put on um, masks to protect our lungs, Goggles to protect our eyes and scrubbers and filters and things to protect the environment, right? So all of these things are exposure precautions. And that's how we've traditionally dealt with hazards in, in, in um, you know, hazardous chemicals in industry. And all of it focuses on that exposure side of the risk equation. So, but we know throughout history, exposure precautions can and will fail. We know that. And we've seen it time and time again. We still see it today in our communities. Um, unfortunately, we see exposure precautions. No matter how wonderfully engineered they are, they can and will fail. So if we can shift this to the hazard and actually remove the hazard or drastically take that down, then we don't have to worry about the exposure precautions. And so green chemistry, of course, um, I'm a chemist. and. Um, material scientist, so I'm a little bit biased, but um, chemists and material scientists, they can have that greatest potential to actually impact pollution and hazards. And, um, you know, because we are the molecular, we're, we're dealing with the molecular building blocks of all of the pr products that we use and create. And if we can get it right, then we're in a lot better place further on down the line. So um, it's the only science where we're really focusing on that intrinsic hazard and removing that intrinsic hazard of the actual material. So green chemistry is about all of these things. Um, I, talked, I talked about all of these things. 
but it's also about these performance pieces, reducing costs, enhancing performance and innovation, which really speak to companies and industry. Um, but I think this is important, you know, because it's, it's going to be and uh, why green chemistry can be successful in the marketplace. You know, oftentimes we think when we're, we're dealing with environment and sustainability that it's going to come at a cost and that we're essentially at a crossroads with, you know, the economics and environment. But that's, that's not the case in green chemistry. Um, and there's several reasons for this. I mean, part of it is that just no one wants to use a hazardous material if you don't have to. A lot of times we just don't have the solutions, so there might not be another choice at the moment. And, they, and companies might not have you know, the time to actually stop and invent. We wish they would do more of that. But um, so the cost of using hazardous materials, it costs more to store it, to transport it. Um, treat it, dispose, regulatory costs, liability, worker health and safety, corporate reputation, community relations, new employee recruitment. More and more students today want to be working for companies that are contributing to the greater good. So students are demanding it and, and they're demanding that from, from their employers and from at their academic institutions as well. So it's, it's expensive to use hazardous materials. So a company is going to shift to this if they can. That's the key, if they can. Another cost of doing business has to do with environmental regulations. These are some of John's slides as well, too. You can usually tell if you got the little Warner Babcock logo in the, in the corner. But what John did was he tallied up the number of laws we have here in the US over the past about 140 years or so. And what you see, um, and these are environmental regulations here in the US, not much happened until about 1962. It's also the year John was born. So, um, but Rachel Carson published Silent Spring. You know, never doubt that one person can't change the world. And um, it goes exponentially up from this point. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And if you take a look at these, there's all these little acronyms that say, no, you can't dump that in the rivers anymore. We want rivers that don't light on fire. Go figure. You know, because that used that did happen, and it's you know it's important for us to remember that 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 did happen. Um, and we're very fortunate, um, you know. And there's more and more, you know, happening because we still we still do our, our pollution looks a little bit different. I feel like it's a little bit more hidden these days, you know, in endocrine disruptors and some of these other things that are coming out. But um, but at least we've got a system here that's pretty good for environmental regulations to to protect us in our environments. But when a company looks at this too, they also see this is an exponential increase in the cost of doing business. So, um, you know, these, so if they can avoid some of these things and using some of these things that require regulations, they're going to do it. They're going to shift away from it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, companies still spend just as much on research and development as they do on, it, on complying to these environmental regulations. So we want to see them shift a little bit more into that research and development space and pull back on the environmental regulations because um, they can avoid them. So green chemistry, an important piece to green chemistry, you've heard John, if you've heard John speak before, he always tries to hammer this home too. Of course, an alternative, green chemistry technology has to have an environmental benefit. It has to be more, more environmentally benign or just as, you know, it has to, it has to have that environmental, you know, benefit to it than an alternative. Um, but it also has to perform. So, you know, 
like that, you remember that green cleaner, the one of the first ones that came out that you had to, you know, you were washing your windows and it left the streaks and then you had to go get something else to clean it off. You know, I mean, the, the performance wasn't quite there. You didn't, you weren't going to go back and buy that cleaner just because it had a, an environmental benefit. Or maybe, maybe you would, I don't know. I don't want to make judgments for you. But, um, but it has to have, I guess the average consumer might not go back and get it. Um, so... You know, it has to have that performance. It has to perform just as good or better than the alternatives. Otherwise, we're not going to go back and, and get it. It also has to have the economics. So very rarely will we pay a premium for these. Sometimes we will if we can afford it. But we really, um, we really need the economics to be there. And it, all these three things together is, is really what green chemistry is all about. Again, it makes what we do really hard. <laughs> not easy, but um, it makes what we do a challenge. So um, green chemistry, here's a definition that was published in John's book back um, in 98. It's the design of, and focus on the word design, it's all about innovation and design, chemical products and processes that reduce or eliminate the use or generation of hazardous substances. There it is in one sentence. Um, but this book um, was published in 98, and uh, one of the best pages in it, and um, don't tell John that I told you only one page I like, but um, it's not true. It's, it's a great book. It's the, whole, the whole thing is good. But this is the most important thing that's in it, is, are these 12 principles. And um, this, is, this is what you know, speaks to us as chemists, as molecular designers. You know, how can we actually you know, change the chemistry that we do? What should we con consider in, as, we're, as we're greening up our processes? And it's things like you know, overarching principles such as pollution prevention. You know, it's better to not prevent, to prevent waste than it is to treat it or clean it up after the fact. That, you know, some of them are no-brainers like that. Just like this one's kind of, the, I think, the oh yeah or duh one, you know, like, yeah, we don't want to use things that cause explosions or fires. Like, wouldn't that be obvious, don't you think? But we needed to state it in chemistry. So just, you'll see how, what the challenge that we face as green chemists, that yes, this needs to be stated in chemistry. Um, so, um, but it's also things, you know, such as less hazardous chemical, using safer reagents, safer solvents, using renewable feedstocks, so shifting away from petroleum-based, um, which 90, 95% of what we create today is still petroleum-based, um, you know, to things designing for degradation, because we, we, there are fundamental design rules for, you know, what makes a molecule break down and what makes something persist. So, you know, we can understand that as chemists. Um, so anyway, see, these are the 12 principles. I'm not going to go into all of them in detail, but you can kind of get a flavor if you haven't heard more about green chemistry. The good news is that it's growing. So this is um, a map from University of Oregon's Greener Educational Materials for Chemists. It's a wonderful database online of the University of Oregon, and you can go in and search terms and find, find some wonderful resources in there. Most of the resources that you find in there are going to be for higher ed communities, so it's mostly for undergraduate level. But there's a great amount of resources out there. And you can also, if you're a green chemist or looking to get into the space, you can put in yourself on the map. And you can go see who's in your area through this Google map. And it's not only US-based. You can also, although I just took a snapshot of the US, it's also international when you go on the site. So um, you can see the community of green chemists is growing and growing and growing. You have to put yourself on this map, too. So I'm sure you know, there's many, many more that uh, you just, they just haven't gone through the steps to put themselves on the map yet, too. 
So that's good. It's positive. It's growing. This community is growing. There's a lot, a lot of work happening. You know, if you went back to um, back when I started in green chemistry in 99, um, you know, this would have been pretty, <laughs> you wouldn't have seen many, many of these little spots. Um, there, was a, there was a few, but it's, it's hugely, hugely increased just over the past 15 years. Um, this is the green, this is a slide from um, Green Chemistry Commitment is a higher ed program that we run. And colleges and universities are signing on and committing to teaching green chemistry at their college and their university. One of our latest signers was UC Davis. We're also super excited to have um, UC Berkeley on board. So out in this area, we have some very pro progressive and also really large institutions that are top ranked, which is su super valuable for the community to see that these institutions are creating change and are actually bringing green chemistry right in their right into their chemistry degree programs. So it's really exciting. So the green chemistry commitment is really um, you know, these institutions are signing on and they're committing to implementing student learning objectives. And so, because what we're about is really trying to change, to, to create systemic change so that we can support, you know, the change that needs to happen in, in industry. Um, and each one of these institutions does things a little bit differently. So it's really exciting to, to see how each institution is implementing it. And these aren't the only institutions that are doing green chemistry. These are just the, the green chemistry commitment ones. More and more and more are, are signing on. This is a fairly new program of ours. So the good news, too, is there's a lot of, lot, a lot of research happening. There's some wonderful Presidential Green Chemistry Challenge Award winners out there, which is, a, which is an award that comes out of the US EPA. There's wonderful case studies in green chemistry. I'm going to point to just a few more before I hand things over to Kate in just like three slides or so. Just a few slides. Um, but um, just a few more coming out of the Warner Babcock Institute for, for Green Chemistry. Um, this is a company called Collab collaborative aggregates, and it has to do with asphalt paving. Asphalt is all petroleum. It's all petroleum that we've got you know, on our roads, and it's um, remarkable how much we have covering our earth. Um, so what John did, and this is also a, a good biomimetic example as well, too, because I'm going to actually pull this up, I think. Yeah, so they have this material that they call Delta S. Any scientist in the, in the room, Delta S? What is the S? Oh, you're almost um, entropy. So it's entropy. It's um, we're nerds, okay? We're we're nerds. Yes. Um, yeah, it is. It is. It is nerdy. Yeah. So it's. Um, <laughs> but but so much. If you ever hear John talk about entropy, I mean, in nature, what happens is um, you know nature is is so driven by entropy, and in chemistry, it's much. It's very much driven by enthalpy. So we are gonna. You know, it's the heat, beat, and treat kind of, you know, thing that we do as chemists. Like, we can make and break bonds, and we're going to use as much energy and enough, you know, a bunch of nasty materials, too, to make this happen. Um, but, you know, John always flips this on its side and said, let's look at the entropy. Let's look at, the, you know, how things self-assemble. And if, you, if you've heard him use this term, too, um, you know, let's sit these molecules down on, on you know, 
down on a chair and say, what do you want to do? So it's, it's called molecular psychology and understanding what a molecule wants to do. And we're going to be in a much better place energy-wise and, um, you know, in terms of sustainability, too. So this is called delta S because of the entropy. So what um, he's got this... I don't know, magic frou-frou dust kind of a thing, that when you add it to, um, so what happens when you're repaving a road? They, they chop it all up and essentially stick it in a landfill. And they might be able to use 5% or so of that material to recycle it back in and turn it into a new road, but oftentimes it's so oxidized from the sun that you can't reuse the materials. So it's just so damaged. Um, but he's, his magic frou-frou dust, um, <laughs> I'm sure he does not call it that, but I am right now. Um, he can use over 50% recycled material. And the other thing that, that his magic ingredients do is that it, they can also pave at really cold um, temperatures. So this is our house right there. If you come to our house in Wilmington, Mass., that's what it looks like. And this was our driveway. I don't, you can't really see too well. So we actually had a, a, our driveway was fine, so, but John wanted to test out a new formulation, so, um, you know, and a new asphalt. So, of course, what happens? It's tested on us, you know, just like the hair dye. It's tested on, it's tested on John. So, um, so they ripped up our driveway, which was a perfectly good driveway, and then they put down this, this new, um, this new thing, and they paved it, actually. It was a couple years ago now, and it was just before Thanksgiving, and it was so cold. It was like 17 degrees um, you know, in, for, for us in, in New England, super cold for that time of year. And um, the thing is, you can't typically pave at that temperature. You need, it, it's, you know, you need a much warmer temperatures. So, but it went down just fine. You know, the, I think the, the construction people that were at, at our house were thinking, you know, a big hockey puck was going to come out and just sort of, you know, sit there. But they, they paved it. It wor you know, we have a nice driveway now. Um, which we did before, but this one's even better. Um, and it's holding the test of time. But they're also working with a number of places, you know, because the goal is, is that they could take, um, so what they want to get to with this product, because right now they can use 50% material. Okay, so we're getting better. That still means 50% of it's going into a landfill, right? We're in a better place. But what they want to get to is essentially have um, like a machine that's sort of takes, you know, strips up the, the current asphalt, reworks it, and lays it right back down, right? So that's where they want to get to. So we'll, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Um, so wouldn't that be cool? No more petroleum that we need to cover our, our streets and our roads and our highways. Um, oh, that's them at some show. Um, okay, and then they're also working on uh, formaldehyde-free wood composites. So this is another one that they just went up to Canada just a couple weeks ago and did a new production. Um, you know, you've seen, you remember the FEMA trailers um, that were, where people were getting sick from all the formaldehyde off-gassing and things because of, um, I mean, this plywood is a wonderful, wonderful case study of um, green chemistry. You know, we're shifting away from formaldehyde and phenolic resins and things like that. And this is a, a, a uh, it's a, uh, it's a, sorry, lignocellulose um, composite material. So that is actually outperforming many of the current um, particle board and, and, uh, and plywood materials that are out there. So um, building in construction materials. And this is out of a spin-off company out of Warner Babcock called Collaborative Aggregates. 
So um, another issue that they're working on is ocean plastics. And um, you know, so there's a huge issue of ocean plastics, which you might be familiar with. They're building up in our oceans at incredible rates. And it's just hugely devastating to see what's actually happening. Back in the summer, um, John got to go to the United Nations and um, present about this problem. There he is up on stage. Um, but there's this wonderful organization called Parlay, Parlay for the Oceans. They're out of New York City. And um, they've teamed up with Warner Babcock as well. And um, have you seen the, the show Whale Wars? I don't know. I haven't really watched it, but it's, I've, I've, you know, I'm familiar with it. But they you know, go around. and Anyway, the Sea Shepherd, there it is, the Sea Shepherd, they picked up and they found, they, were, you know, they got a, um, a fishing net from one of the, uh, you know, there's these fishing nets that are just sort of abandoned out there. And then you know, the wildlife get stuck in, the animals get stuck in, in the water. Well, they harvested one, and then they sent it. There they are with the fish, the huge amounts of fishing net. Um, they sent it to Warner Babcock, who spun it into a nylon fiber, and they sent it to Adidas, and they made a shoe out of it. It's super cool. And this, just, this was just over the summer. They had a nice press release and thing about that. And this is a prototype shoe that they're going to be selling next year, Adidas. So, um, so this is addressing the issue of the current problems of or, you know, what's out there. The next phase of this is creating plastic um, you know, that's not, that's not going to build up our, our environment. Part of it's an infrastructure problem, part of it's a just plastic use problem, and part of it is having, you know, actual materials that might break down in the proper timeline or be, you know, break down into nice innocuous byproducts. So that's the... How do they collect? That's a great question. They have lots of people that are collecting it. They have some fishing boats that collect it. Um, they also have people that are going along beaches and collecting it off the shores. So it's like a huge, it's a, it's a lot of, it's an intensive process because it takes a lot of people to do that. So, yeah. Um, the fiber, it's, it was actually a nylon fiber spun from the plastic. So they basically like melted the net. Yeah, and then spun a new fiber from it. Yeah, so part of the challenge with the, with the ocean plastics, though, is it's made of, I mean, the fiber is different because it's the net is like one material. But when they're harvesting all of this, it's multiple plastics. It's got lots of different properties. So they're trying to figure out what more they can do with some of these ocean plastics. They're turning them into some building materials, um, building and constructing materials. They're actually turning some of them into paint, which is really interesting. Um, so yeah, it's a big, it's a big issue. Um, another one, and I think this might be my last example, um, is, so I already mentioned BPA. You remember BPA in, in water bottles and, and, um, and uh, baby bottles? And it was essentially, it was remarkable. You know, Canada banned it, and then all of a sudden, I feel like they were just gone. You know, they, they just got out of all of the plastic bottles. So um, John was talking to a reporter at one point and, you know, saying, well, isn't this wonderful? And he said, yeah, you know, it is, but... Um, what I'm more concerned about is, you know, there's the amount of, it, of, of BPA that's actually leached out of these is so minimal, although it's an endocrine disruptor, so you don't need much of it to have an impact. But um, what happened, you know, in re realistically, what I'm concerned about is cash register receipts. You also find BPA in can linings, um, in epoxy resins, but you find it in powder form, free powder form on thermal cash, re cash register receipts. So you have milligram quantities on these things. 
And um, it's kind of, you know, and it sort of hit us. I remember we were sitting in a restaurant, and um, I think we were, I don't remember which, I think we were in San Francisco. And I was facing, you know, the fire brick oven thing that they had for the pizzas. And um, they had the stack of receipts, you know, on the thing right there. And I watched, John was facing me, and so I could see this happening. And the guy takes the stack, and then he's like, I'm just going to throw them in the fire. He throws them in the fire. So I'm going, oh my goodness, how many people, you know, are getting exposed to this in their food? Um, anyway, it was pretty remarkable. So John's talking with a, uh, a reporter about this. And then, and then it's all over the news, you know, BPAs and, and cash registers register receipts. It's all over the place. John was even in this esteemed journal, um, <laughs> Woman's World, with on the same page as a cat pushing a shopping carriage. We still have it. We're going to frame this, I think. Um, John Warner discovers that there's, you know, or, or reveals that there's, even though it wasn't really a secret, he just said it to somebody, um, you know, that BPA is in cash register receipts. So they've been doing a lot of work on, you know, BPA-free thermal image, you know, thermal um, thermal printing. So it's it's really interesting stuff that they've got coming out of the Warner Babcock Institute. So that's my part. I'm handing it over to Kate to talk to you guys a little bit more about um, biomimicry and green chemistry and how this fits into education. I don't know if you want to pause for a second, if there's any burning questions at this point, too. We can also address questions at the end, too. Question? Stretching? Yeah. Question and stretch? <laughs> Yeah, that's so the question is, you know, are our companies now going to shift towards something like BPS, which is really just a sulfonated version of B bisphenol A? Um, that is an excellent point. And this is a point that we talk about a lot that, you know, at the way that we address um, these things in our in our you know federal government is to focus chemical by chemical by chemical, and that's not really a good way to do it, right? Because there's always another one's going to pop up, or they're going to say, okay, let's add a carbon, and now it's not that chemical, you know. But it's so similar that it might have the actual same properties. So what we've been yeah, or worse, exactly, and and what we've been advocating for is more of a comprehensive chemicals policy, so that. It's a you're looking at assays, you're looking at the actual, um, you know, how do these molecules behave, what are the hazards, what are those hazard endpoints, as opposed to molecule by molecule. Then you're going to get away from the lists, and okay, I can use any chemical as long as it's not on this list, but now we're going to say, okay, no, we want things that don't cause cancer, we want things that, you know, don't have endocrine disruption, and define those a little bit tighter, too, for companies. So that's what we've been advocating for, because you're absolutely right, that, that happens a lot. So, yeah. So that sort of velvety feel to um, to cash register receipts is BPA. Um, the velvety feel cash register receipts is BPA. Yes and no. Fifty percent. It turns out that fifty percent of cash register receipts are BPA. Um, use BPA, and fifty percent don't. So actually, fifty percent you can't you can't tell as a consumer, and that's the, that's the thing. Like it's it's a little bit horrifying. Um, so. 
and most most companies don't even know like you know whole foods i don't you know they wouldn't they might not know you know like you know wherever you're shopping like the, the people who are buying their cash for their cash registers they might not know either so um it's you can buy some right now that aren't you know they just some of them might not work as well as the as the bpa ones but Maybe we don't even need cash register receipts. You know, we're 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 moving away from that anyway. And and you know, maybe you don't. So anyway, yeah. So you can't really tell. Yeah. I want to go back a little ways. Um, you were you had that. Um, I'd like the, the title of the book too, with the twelve principles of green chemistry design. Green chemistry theory and practice. Yeah. Life loss or whatever. Yep. And then finally, some people got together and said, you know, let's get this protocol list together. And they implemented it and they were able to save a lot of lives and a lot of money and a lot of, you know, carbon and stuff. And so they started to spread that around um, yep. as far as they could, like into, you know, Nikki's or whatever. And it just changed everything. And, and it was like a change in consciousness and people just started becoming more aware and present to what they yeah. were doing. And I'm just wondering. That's a, that's I mean, a, could you do that in, in a way that would be like sort of a blanket regulatory policy or something? Yeah, or for, that's a good question. The, the, I don't know. We, the, the, thing about, the, the good thing about green chemistry is that it's not regulation and that it's what companies turn to to avoid regulation. Or it's because of regulation, they're going to go to green chemistry. So we try to, because we want to be company and industry friendly, because we want them to do green chemistry, right? And so we, we try to avoid the, um, we let the regulators do, the chemical policy people do what they're going to do. We want them to, you know, make sure they're creating good, strong regulations. Um, but, but we want to be on the other end waiting for people to, you know, come to us for, <laughs> or, or come to green chemistry to help solve those regulatory issues. So it's a tricky one. I don't know from a regulatory perspective. I don't know if you could regulate people actually doing green chemistry because it actually, us chemists are really odd and we've got these strange egos and we've got, you know, sometimes they're, can barely fit in a room, you know, with these. And, and so if they're really the way, you know, we don't want to turn them off to it. So it's, I don't know, that's a tricky, tricky question. I don't know if you had any other pieces, nuggets for that one. So that's, that's interesting. But our, the green chemistry commitment is, is focused on the academic level, and that's a non-regulatory approach. It's kind of fashioned after the president's climate commitment, which is a non-regulatory approach as well. And it's a voluntary, you know, the, the colleges and universities are signing on and committing to bringing their campuses down to climate neutral because they see the benefits. They're not going to wait for regulations. They're going to do it. And so that's, what, that's kind of what the, the green chemistry commitment is fashioned. It's, it's a non-regulatory approach because it's the right thing to do. It's where we're going to get to, hopefully. So um, it's interesting. Yeah.
Well, I wasn't, I, I didn't think I was going to be a chemist. So that was, that was, I guess, um, so I was, um, I was in, in, into environmental science. Um, and I, you know, in eighth grade, I did a Earth Day fair and learned about ozone depletion. And I was just alarmed. I was like, why doesn't everyone else, why isn't everyone else alarmed? And then I learned about all the other issues and challenges. And I just couldn't believe that people weren't more alarmed and doing something. And so I said, I, I'm going to do something. And, and then when I went to college, undergrad, um, where I where I went, they didn't have uh, environmental science major. I would have gone into that, um, and it's funny that I chose that. But it was actually my my choice of undergrad institutions was based on athletics more than academics. I'll admit that now. But it worked out wonderfully because had I gone somewhere else that had an environmental science major, I would have been you know studying the problems, which is valuable and important. But I wouldn't have been focused on the problem solving, which is green chemistry, and um, so. So anyway, they didn't have that major, so there was chemistry or biology, and I said, well, I like chemistry more than biology, so I'm going to do that. And I thought I was going to be, you know, an environmental chemist, and I thought I was going to be doing that sort of thing. But then I learned about green chemistry, and I got, oh my goodness, I can create solutions, and I can use chemistry as the solution as opposed to chemistry as the problem. You know, and that's, that was hugely powerful for me once I realized that, because I saw that as being, you know, to me, a really powerful place to be. So, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to. Do you want to get? I got a really quick yeah, okay, go for it. What is your driveway made of? <laughs> it's still it's still petroleum. Um, right now, right now it's it's um, but the, but it's also petroleum and usually ground up like uh, roof roofing material, which is also petroleum. Um, so, but it's but it's fifty percent. It's over fifty percent recycled petroleum. So at least you know we're not harvesting more of it. Um, so yeah. I don't know. Good question. I'll ask John that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I know. We're um. Do you want to do a little bit more? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um. There's some great. Yeah. Yep, Environmental Working Group is a great one. There's also some, you know, like uh, skin deep websites that you know focus more on cosmetics. There's um, beauty beauty counter. There's um, Good Guide. Um, Good Guide is a you know they even have an app. Um, there's some really. Well, there you go. <laughs> EWG, Environmental Working Group. Yep, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they they still that's still in trials. It's now in um, human trials for toxicity. That's so. This is an Alzheimer's Alzheimer's disease drug, um, and that's a long process. But they're they're advancing, and it's still um, blowing everything else out of the water, which is exciting. Yeah. Second question: um, Are you doing any research on who determines what's toxic now versus what might be toxic in the future? Are you doing any research in that regard? So there's a lot of natural substances that have to be. Yeah, the good question. Not, we're not approaching it exactly that way. Um, but what we're doing is creating um, toxicology uh, modules and, and curriculum to train chemists to think this way and to bring this into their design portfolio, so that we can be we can avoid so many more of those unintended consequences than we ever could before. So that's what that's the way we've been approaching it is by giving those tools to 
chemists, to the molecular designers, so they can actually know how to properly or, or to you know design in reduced toxicity and design in biodegradability and you know design in these these pieces. So that's how we've been focusing on it. So, yeah, yeah. You're a chemist, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, there's some um, like short, jeez, uh, I'm not going to remember the names of them right now, but there are some analytical methods that are coming out to that drastically cut down on the amount of solvent use because analytical chemistry, and which is used very a lot, quite a bit in environmental chemistry, um, is, is a big impact, obviously, in all the solvent use. So yes, absolutely. And there's some... Um, there's a few that we have at the institute that they've been trying out. Um, like, oh, I'm not going to remember the names of what they're called, but um, but I'd be happy to give you, you know, to see if I can find more information for you on that. So there's also a lot of work going on in analytical chemistry to address the analytical side of things. So absolutely, yeah, yes, one more. <laughs> Good to know. Yep. Thank you. Yep. One more. Um, as I don't know if all of the studies have been done, but I would, <laughs> I would think that it's it's probably going to be fairly similar, but um, you know, just looking at structures, but. I don't, you know, it's one of those things like, it's one of these weird things that we have, you know, chemicals are, are innocent until you can really approve them guilty. It's like, it's just really, or they're, you know, I don't know, it's, it's really, really hard to, to you know, because you have, there's so many assays and so many tests to run, so, good, yeah. So if we can just move straight away from that bisphenol <laughs> structure, I think we'd be in a lot better space. So. Um, Okay, I'm going to hand it over to Kate to talk more about the education materials we have. Fabulous, thanks, Amy. Um, loving the dialogue. This is what this is what we like. We like questions and we like answers. We like to you know do our best. And and when we're asking really good questions and we don't have the answers, that's good. <laughs> All right, that's good education. <laughs> that means we've got engaged students, and that's what we want to see. So my background, I'll just really quickly you know tell you a little about myself. I'm not a chemist. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Um, so no, my background, so I love that you asked the question of you know, where Amy got her passion from. And for, for me, I went to undergrad. I went to UMass Boston. Guess what? They were teaching green chemistry there to the PhD chemists and also the non-science majors, me, um, which is kind of wild. The undergrad chemistry majors weren't learning about green chemistry at this time in 2000. 
shockingly enough. Um, so, but my background, political science and environmental studies. Because for me, I thought the only way that I can make environmental change is through advocacy or through environmental regulation or environmental law. So those were all the directions that I was heading in. And then I turned turned out that that wasn't the direction I wanted to go in at all. And education for me is what lit me up. And so I went on and got a master's in environmental education and then paths sort of brought me to green chemistry again after a I'd been out of undergrad for a little while, and I got so excited because it is such an essential piece of environmental education. It's a building block. Let's look at it from the very, very beginning design phase, and how do we use this as a tool to learn and communicate and do better science? Because that's really what it's all about. And when I'm working with students, I know I just love to build off of their energy because guess what, kids? get it. They, there's no hesitation whatsoever when you start talking about, you say, green and chemistry, and we break down the words, you know, chemistry is scary. Chemistry is, in your, raise your hands here if you are a chemist in the audience. Be brave enough to go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, oh, oh, we've got a chemist in training, too. Okay, so when you hear the word chemistry, what are some of those things? Come on, share, share with everybody. What are some of the things? Explosions, we think explosions. What else do you think of when you think of chemistry? You think of toxic. You think of these chemicals, right? And again, I mean, there's nothing is chemical free, but there's plenty of marketing out there for chemical free, all sorts of things. You can get buy all sorts of chemical free things. They're imaginary, right? But, but yeah, so, so chemistry's got a bit of a bad rap, right? And part of what we need to be doing in our communications, in our early communications, is it's the science of solutions. Nobody ever told me that when I was younger. No one ever told me that chemistry was the science of solutions. I had no idea that that was the case. I had to learn, I had to learn it. Who's gonna teach it, right? It's gonna be everybody here. Because we're all part of this big green chemistry ambassador program now. Whether you're a chemist or not, you've signed on just by coming today. So a little bit about um, you know, the work that we do. We do have resources, obviously focused in green chemistry land. Um, but we are STEM, right? We cross all of that. We cross all the disciplines. And we've got some really great resources for both middle school and high school level. These are all online and free. So please go to our website, get our resources. They're in Word document intentionally so that you can take it and make it work for you. Um, there's, at the middle school level, we, you can actually make shampoo. How fun is that? You are put in the role of a material scientist or a chemist, and you pick what's going to go into your shampoo. And you learn a little bit about cosmetics in your everyday lives, because that connects. That helps bring it to life. At least I know it does for me, and I know it does for the students, because they remember then a little bit about acids and bases. And they remember a little bit more about exothermic reactions, because it's not some abstract thing that doesn't really mean anything to them. They connect it back to reality. You know, It, it goes, oh. Right, we're not just, chemists aren't just mad scientists back in the lab mixing up chemicals for the heck of it. That's not what it's all about. Chemists are designing things that are helping to improve our lives. That's another message that I would say, certainly from my political background, not something I believed at all. I really didn't. 
there was there were these companies out there who are there just making money. They weren't there to be out there designing things for the benefit of humanity. They're trying to make a quick buck. Guess what? That's not entirely true either, right? We need to question these things. We need to question them and we need to be creating that dialogue, right? So that's a lot of what our resources do. You know, they're engaging their inquiry style, trying to figure out, okay, how can we do this stuff? So we've got biotech, green math and engineering and green chemistry. So Amy, at the very, very beginning, showed, whoops, oh, I didn't fix that. Um, <laughs> so at the beginning, she showed our mission and vision. And this really is the heart of the organization. You know, we work with both students, teachers, professors, all levels. and. To watch and see students sort of get it and have those aha moments and get really excited that there is this other way to be creating solutions and to be making positive environmental impacts is hugely powerful, right? And that's something that we all can do and it doesn't have to come in the formal setting. It can certainly come in informal education, which is what we're here today doing, right? So has anybody gone to the family fair? Raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay, a few people. For all those people who haven't gone to the family fair, please go to the family fair. There is really fun stuff happening over there. Um, and great volunteers that are doing some really cool activities, some of which I will talk about. So I will just bounce back that it doesn't have to be in the formal setting. You know, informal education is incredibly powerful and I do believe that that makes you know, it has a huge influence. We know, you know, there are studies, there are studies that show us that students will not go into the STEM fields if they're not excited about it before the eighth grade. There are lots of research out there. And a lot of times it tracks back to an informal experience that they've had that's gotten them excited to go into the STEM fields. So we all have the power to, to make that change. On the formal side though, on the formal side, there's this big push. Who's familiar with the term next generation science standards? Okay, yes. And who here, how about educators? Are you formal or informal educators? Raise your hand. Okay, fabulous. And now I need to see the game changers. Who are the game changers in here? All right, game changers, good. What about change makers? I want to see Everybody's a change maker. You're at the Bioneers Conference. I want to see everybody's hands. You're all change makers, right? So yay, there we go. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so the next generation science standards, you know, this is something where green chemistry fits so well into the equation because we're no longer, you know, we're really looking at creating solutions, analyzing problems, creating solutions. That's what green chemistry is all about. That's what biomimicry is all about. So using those tools, it fits in seamlessly. Um, we do have, for the high school level, we've got this resource called a uh, curriculum map. And what this does is it actually spells out all the places that you can integrate chemistry, um, green chemistry, across the chemi chemistry curriculum throughout the year. And we do offer online courses. We've got several teachers who have um, taken courses out here. And th that's one of the wonderful things about doing an online course, right? Is you get to interact with, with people from all over the world. We had um, teachers this summer from Australia, from Ireland. Um, we had a teacher from, I want to say, I want to say Bolivia. Like we, we, we've had some really, really diverse audiences in our online course, which is fabulous. And it always 
you know, especially when we have that international audience gives us, you know, pause to think of all the different ways that we can be integrating into um, education systems. So, so this is just one thing that I wanted to highlight and just let you know about. So I don't really like just talking and talking and talking. So we're going to play a game, because what's more fun than that, right? Um, so this is one of the ways that we introduce green chemistry. We use biomimicry. Now you guys are, are pros on this one, so you might like really just blow me out of the water. Um, some of these examples you're going to be intimately familiar with. But this is one of our resources that we have online, and it's one of the ways we can start the conversation of and using biomimicry as our starting place, right? So you get these set of cards, and if we were in tables, I'd give you cards, and this is and we'd do it in teams, and that's how we would do it. But we don't have that set up in here, so we're going to do it another way. We're going to go like this. We're going to start with this image. What the heck is that? A submarine, okay. So, submarines. When you're thinking about designing a submarine. Whales. whales, we can look to whales for inspiration. What is another animal that we could, hmm? Dolphin would be another animal, excellent. Who else? Hmm? Squid, seals, birds, shark, otters. There's so many animals that we could derive inspiration from. The, one of the fastest. We're going to go with, we're going to go with shark, all right? And shark has actually, so there are, there are faster submarines as a result of innovation in looking at sharks. So we also have the sharklet example, which I've got a little bit more information on that one too. But there's some really cool stuff we've been learning from sharks and be able to integrate it into our, um, into our technology. How about this one? Termites, so termite mounds in particular, right? So termite mounds, what do we know about termite mounds? How tall can they get in Australia? Give me a guess. Six feet, yeah, they can get up to like six feet tall. They're pretty amazing. Termites are amazing engineers, aren't they? They're just phenomenal. So what if we could learn from them how to make buildings that didn't rely on air conditioning? What about that? Have you, are you, have you guys heard that one before? Yeah? Oh, you know it. Jeez. Okay. I'm going to try to get you. I'm going to try to stump you on one of them. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the next one, the blue morpho butterfly. Oh, ooh, you know it. Go. Oh, oh, oh. No, no. Hey, biomimicry. All right. What biomimicry is so cool? is that it's ideas, all right? So just because my answer up here is not exactly what your answer is doesn't mean that that's wrong, okay? <laughs> Structural color, excellent, I heard it. Structural color, yeah. So Amy, wave your, wave your ring around. Amy has a really cool ring that has, come on, show, yep, show it off. This is actually her wedding ring. And it's structural color. Yeah, well, it's it's um, it's titanium dioxide. Uh, well, it's titanium, and then um, it's anodized, so they pass a current through it, and they and it and they essentially oxidize the surface of the titanium. And depending on the amount of charge, the current you pass through it, you get a different particle size. We are nerds. Okay, I'm telling you, we're nerds. This is our and so and then um, but based on the particle size, it it you know 
def def deflects the light or refracts the light, and you get a different color. So you can get like pretty much any color from the rainbow. So ours is blue um, in the groove here, but um, yeah, it's titanium dioxide. So it's not a pigment. It's not going to scratch off. It's just the surface is titanium. So it's a titanium ring, titanium dioxide surface. And of course, my research was in titanium dioxide too, so some of it anyway. So again, I am so, we are such nerds. I am such nerds. And I'm wearing a tripeptide um, necklace here, which I'll tell you about. Later. And metal layers, yes. <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, if we think about the manufacturing of pigments and dyes, we could use a little help in that department, all right? There, there certainly, and there is, there is work being done. Um, but if we could rethink and go in the structural color direction, there is a company called Tajian Fabrics in Japan that is doing these really cool things. So I know some of you are nodding your heads, and I know some of you are definitely familiar with this one. Yeah. Tajian Fabrics is the name. T-E-J-I-N, yes, it's a J, yeah, Tajin, yeah. So they're a pretty cool one. Now, all right, what is this a picture of? You know this one? Okay. We do have a problem, right? We've got, we've got landfills, and we've got lots of them. And anybody know what one of the gases is that comes from the? Yes, so methane. Methane causing, helping to contribute to global climate change, right? We've got excess, all, all sorts of things. So right, we're, we're all really well-versed in the problems, right? We're well-versed in the problems here. What can we possibly be doing? Who could we possibly derive inspiration from to help us address reducing the amount of methane that's coming out of landfills? I've stumped you, haven't I? Uh-oh, bacteria, mm. bacteria, you are on it. So it is bacteria. Oh, and my, okay, so I was not going in the mushroom direction, but bacteria. So there's another animal, the kangaroo. So how the bacteria inside the kangaroo's stomach actually digests grass differently than cows. So cows, same diet, eating grass, produce methane, right? But the kangaroos, research scientists, right up until like a couple of years, not even, I think it's only been a year and a half, they thought that kangaroos didn't actually produce any methane at all. Truth is they do, it's just much less than cows. And it has to do with that enzyme, bacteria, that they're, you know, inside their stomachs. So what if... Right? What if we could derive and figure out some way to use enzymatic, use bacteria, use something to be breaking down and digesting our landfills in a way that would reduce the methane? That'd be pretty darn great, wouldn't it? It would be fabulous. <laughs> that is one, right? I think there's, there is no one right answer, right? <laughs> so I think we've got uh, so many challenges when it comes to looking at some of our problems that if we don't come up with multiple solutions and ways to address it, we're not going to solve it, right? We're just going to make we're going to make incremental progress, which is hugely important, right? And we want to keep taking those next steps and next steps. So some of these are ideas that are going to take a chunk out of it, just like the asphalt, right? Fifty percent is a heck of a lot better than zero, but it's still not 100. And the goal is we want to get to that point. So progress. And I love, 
there's so many different ways that I think we need to be working on these solutions, for sure. So here's one more, the blue muscles. Who's familiar with this example? This is another real classic, okay? Yeah, for, for you well-versed biomimicry folks in the, in the room, you biomimetics. <laughs> mm, yeah, now it's looking good. So the byssus thread that enables the blue muscles to adhere to rocks and to boats and to, you know, whatever they want to. The proteins from that, they, they were able to analyze. So these scientists, Professor Lee from Oregon State, was able to figure out how to replicate, you know, and sort of mimic the same way that those proteins do the adhering and use that in the making of plywood. So the formaldehyde-free plywood. Now, it was interesting that we had the question before about policy in terms of change, and there's this whole set of Presidential Green Chemistry Challenge Award, um, you know, they're, they're, this whole challenge it goes out every year, and there are five awards that I've been giving out since 1997, is that right? 96, 96, I was close. So, um, so this continuity over the, over the years, you know, you think we've had Democrats and we've had Republicans in the office since then, and this award has, has stayed steady. So this is one way of recognizing and celebrating some of the work that's happening in industry about green chemistry, innovation, and technology. And so there's big companies, there's big names, and then there's you know, academics that you've never, never heard of before that are doing this work. Um, so this is just one classic example uh, that, that often gets talked about when we're talking about biomimicry. Now, we were able to spin off two different lessons for this one. The middle school, which could also be elementary school level as well, we do it when we do outreach. So what the students do is they compare and make two homemade glues. And when we think, when we boil down the 12 principles, we talk about cost, safety, performance. So the triangle, you know, you need to have cost, safety, performance in order for it to be green chemistry technology. So they compare two different glues, homemade glues, one of which uses a little more energy one of which maybe doesn't stick quite as well. But guess what? You have to evaluate and use your criteria to, de to determine which one, if you're gonna market and you're gonna be a glue manufacturer, which one are you gonna pick and why? So it helps them to sort of process and think because with everything we're making choices, thank you, we're making choices and deciding, you know, there, there, there are consequences to our choices. There, and so having that understanding that for everything, there are some, some trade-offs, and there's lots of green chemistry metrics for, for at the academic level and for the professional level, but for even for students, just the basics of them understanding that there are trade-offs is really important because we don't want to sugarcoat that this particular product has no consequences, right? Everything's got something. So now I've been blabbering a little bit too much, so I'm going to have to speed, speed through uh, my next few things. But... I have two particular ones to highlight from this Steelcase partnership. So um, one of the things that for us as a nonprofit, one of the ways that we um, are able to offer free resources online is we partner with companies that want to you know, help support the work that we do, and that enables us to make our resources free and open source. So Steelcase sponsored the development of three case studies highlighting some of the innovations that they're really proud of that they're doing in partnership with, with, um, with, with their company partners. And so one of them is Ecovative. Have you guys heard of these guys? Raise your hands. I heard a, somebody. Okay, so Ecovative is a company in New York, 
And what they're doing is, and they, I just love the question, are mushrooms the new plastic? I mean, that gets you kind of excited, right? You really want to know the answer to that. Are they? Are they? So what this process is, is what they're taking is they've, they've developed... Um, a way that there's a particular, and this is a very particular thing, so it's a particular mushroom, it's a particular fungus, and it's the roots, so it's the mycelium of the roots that they are able to infuse and use agricultural waste. So if you think of, you know, corn husks, anything sort of left over on the farm, they're able to use that, and it's a replacement for styrofoam. So think of styrofoam and how unhappy of a product that is. But wait, at the same time, Styro has all these amazing properties, right? It does these really, really great things. It insulates really well. You can, you can feel good about shipping packages and it's not gonna you know, crush your electronics or anything like that. So Steelcase is using it for shipping furniture, but we turned it into a really fun research project, inquiry-based project. Now, what the students did is they dug into and looked at the life cycle analysis, looking at polystyrene, looking at styrofoam, and then comparing it to the life cycle analysis of the, the mushroom materials. So we're talking, you know, there's some really contrasting differences in terms of renewable feedstock versus petrochemical start, starting points. And then they biodegrade, which is fabulous. And unlike some of the other biodegradable plastics and the bioplastics out there, this is something that can truly be composted in your backyard. The stuff that you can get and play around with in the, in the labs. Um, so that is another really, really fabulous trait. Um, so they were able, able to do all sorts of fun tests of thermal insulation impact. You know, they were dropping stuff off of the bleachers. We had some students piloting that. They just had a blast. So, um, so yeah, here are a couple of, of pictures. And I will just give one anecdotal story about a student group that came to visit us. And we had a student who, her science fair was on Monday. They visited us on a Friday. She, for her science fair on Monday, which she, okay, hadn't really put too much time in to thinking about before coming to visit us on Friday, but she won an honorable mention for her science fair project after just doing a weekend long project looking at styro and mushroom materials because she got so into it. Anyway, there's ways that you can get this material. You can go to the Ecovative site. They have a grow your own kits that you can buy and play with, so it's a good time. Or you can go to the family fair and you can make your own and you can play around because we've got it there. Um, so sharklet, Amy touched on it really quickly. So, um, so it is the shark denticles, and it has to do with the micron scale of preventing bacteria from growing on it. So what we were able to do with students, and this is, again, on the website. So the students took and analyzed sharklet materials, and they were able to look and, you know, just compare the two processes. So I'll just give you just one really, really quick snapshot. And this is the wrap-up. The wrap-up is <laughs> for us to be doing green chemistry and biomimicry education across the spectrum, this is where we can have the most powerful impact, right? It's not enough for our professionals to have the training. We need to be training at the earliest levels because, for one, we need more chemists creating solutions to these problems, okay? We also need consumers more aware about how they can actually be impacting and making impacts uh, and influencing policy, influencing companies, because everybody's got that power. So you guys have been fabulous, and it's totally time to wrap things up. So thanks so much for joining us. And <laughs>
And that's us. <laughs>